Book Fifth, Chapter Six of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Fifth, Chapter Six. It was doubtless because this queer form of directness had in itself for the hour seemed so sufficient that milly was afterwards aware of having really all the while during the strange indescribable session before the return of their companions done nothing to intensify it if she was most aware only afterwards under the long and discurtained ordeal of the morrow's dawn that was because she had really till their evening's end came, ceased after a little to miss anything from their ostensible comfort. What was behind showed but in gleams and glimpses, what was in front never at all confessed to not holding the stage. Three minutes hadn't passed before Milly quite knew she should have done nothing Aunt Maud had just asked her. She knew it, moreover, by much the same light that had acted for her with that lady and with Sir Luke Strett. It pressed upon her then and there that she was still in a current determined, through her indifference, timidity, bravery, generosity, she scarce could say which, by others, that not she but the current acted, and that somebody else always was the keeper of the lock, or the dam. Kate, for example, had but to open the floodgate. The current moved in its mass. The current, as it had been, of her doing as Kate wanted. What somehow in the most extraordinary way in the world had Kate wanted but to be of a sudden more interesting than she had ever been? Milly, for their evening then, quite held her breath with the appreciation of it. If she hadn't been sure her companion would have had nothing from her moments with Mrs. Loder to go by, she would almost have seen the admirable creature cutting in to anticipate a danger. This fantasy, indeed, while they sat together, dropped after a little, even if only because other fantasies multiplied and clustered, making fairly, for our young woman, the buoyant medium in which her friend talked and moved. They sat together, I say, but Kate moved as much as she talked. She figured there restless and charming, just perhaps a shade perfunctory, repeatedly quitting her place, taking slowly to and fro in the trailing folds of her light dress the length of the room, almost avowedly performing for the pleasure of her hostess. Mrs. Loder had said to Milly at Matcham that she and her niece, as allies, could practically conquer the world. But though it was a speech about which there had even then been a vague grand glamour, the girl read into it at present more of an approach to a meaning. Kate, for that matter, by herself, could conquer anything, and she— Milly Thiel was probably concerned with the world only as the small scrap of it that most impinged on her, and that was therefore first to be dealt with. On this basis of being dealt with, she would doubtless herself do her share of the conquering, 
she would have something to supply, Kate something to take, each of them thus, to that tune, something for squaring with Aunt Maud's ideal. This, in short, was what it came to now, that the occasion in the quiet late lamplight had the quality of a rough rehearsal of the possible big drama. Milly knew herself dealt with handsomely, completely. She surrendered to the knowledge, for so it was, she felt, that she supplied her helpful force. And what Kate had to take, Kate took as freely and to all appearance as gratefully, accepting afresh with each of her long, slow walks the relation between them so established and consecrating her companion's surrender simply by the interest she gave it. The interest to Milly herself we naturally mean. The interest to Kate Milly felt as probably inferior. It easily and largely came for their present talk, for the quick flight of the hour before the breach of the spell. It all came, when considered, from the circumstance, not in the least abnormal, that the handsome girl was in extraordinary form. Milly remembered her having said that she was at her best late at night, remembered it by its having, with its fine assurance, made her wonder when she was at her best, and how happy people must be who had such a fixed time. She had no time at all. She was never at her best, unless indeed it were exactly as now, in listening, watching, admiring, collapsing. If Kate, moreover, quite mercilessly, had never been so good, the beauty and the marvel of it was that she had never really been so frank, being a person of such a calibre, as Milly would have said, that even while dealing with you and thereby, as it were, picking her steps, she could let herself go, could, in irony, in confidence, in extravagance, tell you things she had never told before. That was the impression, that she was telling things, and quite conceivably for her own relief as well, almost as if the errors of vision, the mistakes of proportion, the residuary innocence of spirit still to be remedied on the part of her auditor, had their moments of proving too much for her nerves. She went at them just now, these sources of irritation with an amused energy that it would have been open to Milly to regard as cynical, and that was nevertheless called for, as to this the other was distinct. By the way, that in certain connections the American mind broke down. It seemed at least the American mind as sitting there thrilled and dazzled in Milly, not to understand English society without a separate confrontation with all the cases. It couldn't proceed by, there was some technical term she lacked, until Milly suggested both analogy and induction, and then, differently, instinct, none of which were right. It had to be led up and introduced to each aspect of the monster, enabled to walk all round it, whether for the consequent exaggerated ecstasy, or for the still more, as appeared to this critic, disproportionate shock. It might, the monster, Kate conceded, loom large for those born amid forms less developed, and therefore no doubt less amusing. 
it might on some sides be a strange and dreadful monster calculated to devour the unwary to abase the proud to scandalize the good but if one had to live with it one must not to be for ever sitting up learn how which was virtually in short to-night what the handsome girl showed herself as teaching she gave away publicly in this process lancaster gate and everything it contained she gave away hand over hand milly's thrill continued to note aunt maud and aunt maud's glories and aunt maud's complacencies she gave herself away most of all and it was naturally what most contributed to her candour she didn't speak to her friend once more in aunt maud's strain of how they could scale the skies she spoke by her bright perverse preference on this occasion of the need in the first place of being neither stupid nor vulgar it might have been a lesson for a young american in the art of seeing things as they were a lesson so various and so sustained that the pupil had as we have shown but receptively to gape the odd thing furthermore was that it could serve its purpose while explicitly disavowing every personal bias it wasn't that she disliked aunt maud who was everything she had on other occasions declared but the dear woman ineffaceably stamped by inscrutable nature and a dreadful art wasn't how could she be what she wasn't she wasn't any one she wasn't anything she wasn't anywhere milly mustn't think it one couldn't as a good friend let her those hours at matcham were in esperies were pure manna from heaven or if not fully that perhaps with humbugging old lord mark as a backer were vain as a ground for hopes and calculations lord mark was very well but he wasn't the cleverest creature in england and even if he had been he still wouldn't have been the most obliging he weighed it out in ounces and indeed each of the pair was really waiting for what the other would put down she has put down you said milly attached to the subject still and i think what you mean is that on the counter she still keeps hold of you lest kate took it up he should suddenly grab me and run oh as he isn't ready to run he's much less ready naturally to grab i am you're so far right as that on the counter when i'm not in the shop window in and out of which i'm thus conveniently commercially whisked the essence all of it of my position and the price as properly of my aunt's protection lord mark was substantially what she had begun with as soon as they were alone the impression was even yet with milly of her having sounded his name having imposed it as a topic in direct opposition to the other name that mrs loder had left in the air and that all her own look as we have seen kept there at first for her companion the immediate strange effect had been that of her consciously needing as it were an alibi which successfully she found she had worked it to the end ridden it to and fro across the course marked for milly by aunt maud 
and now she had quite, so to speak, broken it in. The bore is that if she wants him so much, wants him, heaven forgive her. For me, he has put us all out since your arrival by wanting somebody else. I don't mean somebody else than you. Milly threw off the charm sufficiently to shake her head. Then I haven't made out who it is. If I'm any part of his alternative, he had better stop where he is. Truly, truly, always, always? Milly tried to insist with an equal gaiety. Would you like me to swear? Kate appeared for a moment, though that was doubtless but gaiety too, to think. Haven't we been swearing enough? You have, perhaps, but I haven't, and I ought to give you the equivalent. At any rate, there it is. Truly, truly, as you say, always, always, so I'm not in the way. Thanks, said Kate, but that doesn't help me. Oh, it's as simplifying for him that I speak of it. The difficulty really is that he's a person with so many ideas that it's particularly hard to simplify for him. That's exactly, of course, what Aunt Maud has been trying. He won't, Kate firmly continued, make up his mind about me. Well, Milly smiled, give him time. Her friend met it in perfection. One's doing that, one is, but one remains all the same, but one of his ideas. There's no harm in that, Milly returned. If you come out in the end as the best of them, what's a man, she pursued, especially an ambitious one, without a variety of ideas? No doubt. The more the merrier, and Kate looked at her grandly. One can but hope to come out and do nothing to prevent it. All of which made for the impression, fantastic or not, of the alibi. The splendour, the grandeur, were for Milly the bold, ironic spirit behind it, so interesting too in itself. What further was not less interesting was the fact, as our young woman noted it, that Kate confined her point to the difficulties so far as she was concerned, raised only by Lord Mark. She referred now to none that her own taste might present, which circumstance again played its little part. She was doing what she liked in respect to another person, but she was in no way committed to the other person, and her moreover talking of Lord Mark as not young and not true were only the signs of her clear self-consciousness were all in the line of her slightly hard but scarce the less graceful extravagance. She didn't wish to show too much her consent to be arranged for, but that was a different thing from not wishing sufficiently to give it. There was something on it all as well that Milly still found occasion to say. If your aunt has been, as you tell me, put out by me, I feel she has remained remarkably kind. Oh, but she has, whatever might have happened in that respect, plenty of use for you. You put her in, my dear, more than you put her out. You don't half see it, but she has clutched your petticoat. You can do anything, you can do, I mean lots that we can't. You're an outsider, independent and standing by yourself. 
you're not hideously relative to tires and tires of others. And Kate, facing in that direction, went further and further, wound up, while Milly gaped, with extraordinary words. We're of no use to you. It's decent to tell you. You'd be of use to us, but that's a different matter. My honest advice to you would be, she went indeed all lengths, to drop us while you can. It would be funny if you didn't soon see how awfully better you can do. We've not really done for you the least thing worth speaking of, nothing you mightn't easily have had in some other way. Therefore you're under no obligation. You won't want us next year. We shall only continue to want you. But that's no reason for you, and you mustn't pay too dreadfully for poor Mrs. Stringham's having let you in. She has the best conscience in the world. She's enchanted with what she has done. But you shouldn't take your people from her. It has been quite awful to see you do it. Milly tried to be amused so as not, it was too absurd, to be fairly frightened. Strange enough indeed, if not natural enough, that, late at night thus, in a mere mercenary house, with Susie away, a want of confidence should possess her. She recalled with all the rest of it the next day, piecing things together in the dawn, that she had felt herself alone with a creature who paced like a panther. That was a violent image, but it made her a little less ashamed of having been scared. For all her scare, nonetheless, she had now the sense to find words. And yet, without Susie, I shouldn't have had you. It had been at this point, however, that Kate flickered highest. Oh, you may very well loathe me yet. Really, at last, thus it had been too much, as with her own least feeble flare, after a wandering watch, Milly had shown. She hadn't cared, she had too much wanted to know and though a small solemnity of remonstrance, a sombre strain had broken into her tone, it was to figure as her nearest approach to serving Mrs. Loder. Why do you say such things to me? This unexpectedly had acted by a sudden turn of Kate's attitude as a happy speech. She had risen as she spoke, and Kate had stopped before her, shining at her instantly with a softer brightness. Poor Milly hereby enjoyed one of her views of how people, wincing oddly, were often touched by her. Because you're a dove, with which she felt herself ever so delicately, so considerately embraced, not with familiarity or as at liberty taken, but almost ceremonially, and in the manner of an accolade, partly as if, though a dove who could perch on a finger, one were also princess, with whom forms were to be observed. It even came to her, through the touch of her companion's lips, that this form, this cool pressure, fairly sealed the sense of what Kate had just said. It was, moreover, for the girl, like an inspiration, she found herself accepting as the right one, while she caught her breath with relief, the name so given her. 
She met it on the instant as she would have met revealed truth. It lighted up the strange dusk in which she lately had walked. That was what was the matter with her. She was a dove. Oh, wasn't she? It echoed within her as she became aware of the sound outside of the return of their friends. There was the next thing, little enough doubt about it after Aunt Maud had been two minutes in the room. She had come up, Mrs. Loder, with Susan, which she needn't have done, at that hour instead of letting Kate come down to her so that Milly could be quite sure it was to catch hold in some way of the loose end they had left. Well, the way she did catch was simply to make the point that it didn't now in the least matter. She had mounted the stairs for this, and she had her moment again with her younger hostess while Kate, on the spot as the latter at the time noted, gave Susan Shepherd unwanted opportunities. Kate was, in other words, as Aunt Maud engaged her friend, listening with the handsomest response to Mrs. Stringham's impression of the scene they had just quitted. It was in the tone of the fondest indulgence, almost really that of dove-coon to dove, that Mrs. Loder expressed to Milly the hope that it had all gone beautifully. Her all had an ample benevolence, it soothed and simplified. She spoke as if it were the two young women, not she and her comrade, who had been facing the town together. But Milly's answer had prepared itself while Aunt Maud was on the stair. She had felt in a rush all the reasons that would make it the most dove-like, and she gave it while she was about it, as earnest as candid. I don't think, dear lady, he's here. It gave her straightway the measure of the success she could have as a dove, that was recorded in the long look of deep criticism, a look without a word that Mrs. Loder poured forth, and the word presently bettered it still. Oh, you exquisite thing! The luscious innuendo of it, almost startling, lingered in the room after the visitors had gone, like an oversweet fragrance. But left alone with Mrs. Stringham, Milly continued to breathe it. She studied again the dove-like, and so set her companion to mere rich reporting that she averted all inquiry into her own case. That, with the new day, was once more her law, though she saw before her, of course, as something of a complication, her need each time to decide. She should have to be clear as to how a dove would act. She settled it, she thought, well enough this morning by quite readopting her plan in respect to Sir Luke Strett. That, she was pleased to reflect, had originally been pitched in the key of a merely iridescent drab, and although Mrs. Stringham, after breakfast, began by staring at it as if it had been a priceless Persian carpet suddenly unrolled at her feet, she had no scruple at the end of five minutes in leaving her to make the best of it. Sir Luke Strett comes by appointment to see me at eleven, but I am going out on purpose. He is to be told, please, deceptively, that I am at home, and you, as my representative, when he comes up, are to see him instead. 
He liked that this time better, so do be nice to him. It had taken naturally more explanation, and the mention above all of the fact that the visitor was the greatest of doctors. Yet when once the key had been offered, Susie slipped it on her bunch, and her young friend could again feel her lovely imagination operate. It operated in truth very much as Mrs. Loder's, at the last, had done the night before. It made the air heavy once more with the extravagance of ascent. It might afresh almost have frightened our young woman to see how people rushed to meet her. Had she then so little time to live that the road must always be spared her? It was as if they were helping her to take it out on the spot. Susie, she couldn't deny, and didn't pretend to, might, of a truth, on her side, have treated such news as a flash merely lurid, as to which, to do Susie justice, the pain of it was all there. But, nonetheless, the margin always allowed her young friend was all there as well, and the proposal now made her was what it in short but Byzantine. The vision of Milly's perception of the propriety of the matter had, at any rate, quickly engulfed, so far as her attitude was concerned, any surprise and any shock, so that she only desired the next thing perfectly to possess the facts. Milly could easily speak on this, as if there were only one. She made nothing of such another as that she had felt herself menaced. The great fact, in fine, was that she knew him to desire just now, more than anything else, to meet quite apart someone interested in her. Who, therefore, so interested as her faithful Susan? The only other circumstance, that, by the time she had quitted her friend, she had treated as worth mentioning, was the circumstance of her having at first intended to keep quiet. She had originally best seen herself as sweetly secretive. As to that she had changed, and her present request was the result. She didn't say why she had changed, but she trusted her faithful Susan. Their visitor would trust her not less, and she herself would adore their visitor. Moreover, he wouldn't, the girl felt sure, tell her anything dreadful. The worst would be that he was in love, and that he needed a confidant to work it. And now she was going to the National Gallery. End of Book Fifth Chapter Six Read by Lars Rolander.